The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Dietary requirements. This is the very first episode of the spin-off's new food podcast called Simon Day Toko Ingawa. I'll be joined by our food editor, Alice Neville, and food entrepreneur, Sophie Gilmore. Kia ora, Alice. Kia ora, Kia ora Simon. Kia ora, ho. Alice has actually just taught me that hiakai means hungry, and Alice is always hiakai, which is a good thing for a food editor, although she's a vegetarian. Pescatarian, thank you very much. Do you think that that's a restriction on someone who's going to be writing about food? Well, a lot of people seem to think so, but I don't because I'm happy to write about meat. I just don't eat it. And I've tried to eat it, but I failed. And Sophie Gilmore is former owner of Bird on a Wire, um, now a food consultant and entrepreneur, and she's also one of my uh, very, very old friends, and the Beyonce of the New Zealand food scene, as she has a small packet of Molden sea salt in her bag at all times. Swag. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> Hi, Simon. That was embarrassing. <laughs> And Dietary Requirements is brought to you by the Spin-Off Foods wonderful partnering sponsors, Freedom Farms and the Fine Wine Delivery Company. Freedom Farms believes that everyone who eats meat has a responsibility to know how the animals have been farmed. They're dedicated to providing you with the best pork, free-range chicken and eggs. You can find their beautiful products at most supermarkets and specialty stores nationwide. But if you don't see them, make sure you ask for it. You can find out more on their website, freedomfarms.co.nz. And the Fine Wine Delivery Company is all about bringing you the best wine, beer and spirits at the best price. If you're in Auckland, their their superstores are on Lun Ave in Mount Wellington and Constellation Drive on the North Shore. They're amazing giant purple warehouses full of the most interesting beverages, including an array of great tap beers. Check out all they have on offer at their website, finewinedelivery.co.nz. And both of them have provided us with wonderful things to eat and drink while we talk to you. Uh, We're going to start this afternoon with a Ninth Island Mythode Traditionale. It's a Tasmanian sparkling. Mm. So cheers. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Plastic glasses don't clink audibly for the microphone, unfortunately. 
But we hope that we're going to bring you a lot of interesting stories, some really cool interviews. Uh, this month, Alice and I have spoken to Sid and Chand Asirawat about their huge news and taking over the French Cafe. We're going to do a, a lot of eating and drinking. Um, this week, we're starting with a Kiwi classic, bacon and eggs. And hopefully, we're going to have a lot of fun along the way. But one thing we're going to do with each person who joins us is talk to them about their dietary requirements because this seems to be a uh, rather unfortunate modern phenomenon and the inspiration of the podcast name. We've learned a little bit about Alice's dietary requirements. Anything else that you need to tell us? Um, not really. I, I, I like... What inspired your vegetarianism? Well... Pescatarianism. I've just never really liked meat. I ate it as a child, but I only really liked things like sausages and really white chicken breast and anything that had sort of bones or like sinew, I did not like. What do you like? I like everything else other than meat. And I did try when I first started working for a food magazine, I had a year of meat where I tried to make myself eat meat. And I did it. I ate like black pudding and lamb, but I just don't, I'm happy for other people to eat it, but I just don't want to eat it. Do you have any dietary requirements, Gilly? Look, I um, have thought about this and the only one I can come up with is that I don't like eating things that don't taste good. So I think the whole food is fuel argument has definitely got its validities and I've tried to remind myself. It's kind of how humans survive. Sure, but it's just so much more than that to me, Simon. I agree. Over the years, I've sort of done the um, not every meal needs to be a party. Tried to tell myself that, but I just can't. You just won't catch me eating something for the hell of it that doesn't taste good. Fair enough. Amen to that. Now one of you should ask me the question. Simon, (laughs) what about you? I'll eat anything. I'll eat absolutely, absolutely anything except smoked chicken. I have these um, scars in my memory of that dirty little pink rugby ball wrapped in the uh, red string. I just can't. There is something really feral about that, and it's it's got a whole lot of water pumped into it as well. Mm. Fuck smoked chicken. So we're going to incorporate some segments into the podcast, and thus far we've come up with one, and it's called The Last Supper, and we're going to talk about where we've been eating recently and what's been good and what's been bad, probably celebrate more than uh, denigrate things, but uh, Sophie and I have a particularly interesting story about where we've last been uh, eating, so maybe we should start with Alice, seeing you're not as interesting as us. Yeah, sorry guys. (laughs) I know, knew this was a bad idea, being the third wheel. <laughs> have you had any interesting meals recently? Um, do they have to be interesting, or can they just be really delicious, like they the best be really thing you've delicious. eaten lately? Yes. What? Oh, I went to a special dinner called the Creation Dinner, which was put on by Karena and Casey Bird, um, who won MasterChef a few years ago, and I wrote about it on the spin-off. You may have read it. Some people on Facebook got upset that... Um, I was a pescatarian, so sorry about that. And anyway, it was based around the creation story of Aotearoa. Each aspect of the story 
would be replicated somehow in a dish. Yeah, if anyone hasn't read your story about it, they really need to. They need to read it. I yeah. thought it was. I thought it was really. It made me feel as though I was there. It was great. But the big question that everyone's been asking, was it worth $320? Well, look, if you sort of have that sort of money and you enjoy events like that and it was a special occasion, then yeah, I think it was. I mean, I wouldn't like remortgage your house to do it. People buy tickets to Beyonce, for example, for that kind of money, don't they? Yeah. And I don't, you know, if I don't really understand the outrage over it because you know you don't have to go yeah you so, choose to go or not to go yeah. it's the, the market yeah the market. i went um, supply and demand i exactly. went on thursday and my capacity is one of um the hosts of this podcast actually to the icebergs um and gusto collaboration dinner at gusto um and it was the same thing i mean the ticket price was 260 dollars, but if Restaurants and food and wine is what you're about, then of course it's a win. You walk out the door having had delicious cocktails, four courses. I've had a great conversation to the chef, the wine waiter, the icebergs chef. We've been spoken to, we've had a great conversation at our table. I just, I can't see how you'd leave disappointed. Maybe it's my version of going to a Beyonce gig. Well, yeah, exactly. You are the Beyonce of New Zealand food. <laughs> I'm just not 100% what that even means. Swag. Swag. We'll um, move on. This, these bubbles are really, really nice. Yeah, they are this, nice. It's very dry. Very it's dry. very clean. Do you think I can burp into the microphone or should Hopefully I not. Go on. face away? I think that right, the nice thing permission. about it is that it's got a nice crispness. It's not, it's not o- overly dry. I think some of the Proseccos that yeah. everyone's drinking now can actually leave you feeling a little bit... Thirsty, <laughs> for lack of a better word, Alice. That was that. Yes, I, I agree. I think it's a very, very nice, nice little creamy. Can I have a look? Thanks. Yeah, it's delicious. The last supper we had together, Sophie, was uh, special. Um, it was hosted at Homestead, a collaboration between Judge Bow and um, and and homestead, we were served a Chinese inspired meal. Uh, a whole suckling pig was cooked. It was the food was fantastic, but it wasn't the food that probably was the um, star of the show. We were joined by uh, a man named Alex, who, spoiler alert, turned out to be one of New Zealand's most um, prolific con men. A storyteller like I've never met and at the end of the day he was completely full of shit but he made for great company um, I, I had a hell of a time I wasn't uh, actually seated with him Sophie was and you told me that you were pretty much conned by the con man oh absolutely I think um, I'd take my hat off to him I think that to be called a con man is one thing but to actually hone your skills that much like the the detail of the story the timelines like on reflection if I google everything he said a lot of it is not true but at the time and with all the social graces of a nice dinner there was no way that it wasn't believable yeah we had cocktails together we told stories we laughed Alex and I laughed Thankfully, we didn't swap numbers, no. But I think it showed how um, true the concept of a con artist is. Mm. Because he had done a lot 
of um, work and putting that act together. Well, and every time he said something, he would have had to be very clearly and carefully watching what other people's reactions were. Like when he said he was left a house in Summer Street, I said, what number? Oh. And he, he said halfway down on the left, you know, and it was a house that was split into three flats, whereas I know that if that was the case on Summer Street, it would be on the right side. But there was there were a series of things like that that he would have had to say, I went to Lindisfarne and then look around and make sure no one else went to Lindisfarne. And there was, yeah, really interesting things about being from Mahia. Everybody from Mahia knows each other. So that was one of the reasons he got busted. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of really um, clever thought put into it. So this man has worked uh, scams under 30, over 30 different aliases around New Zealand. He has been to jail three times. He... Uh, he just can't help himself, though. Every time he reappears, he's um, in the media again for very, very bad reasons. Um, most recently, an article appeared uh, about him offering someone $450,000 to spend five months on his super yacht. Uh, and if he only had time for one night, he could get $45,000 for um, his company. Uh, he, he is a bad, bad man, but he had charmed Sophie. And it wasn't until halfway through the meal where Sam Mannering, the chef at Homestead, recognised him from 2015 appearance at Auckland Fashion Week, where upon handing out Cuban cigars, he told everyone that he was had an import licence because his grandfather had saved Fidel Castro's wife's life. So this is this is how deep this guy's. How um, good is he? Yeah. Honestly, I feel like I'm still on a high. I think you guys should be writing the script for the movie you're going to make about his life. I think if we offered him the lead role, he'd take it. I think he would. <laughs> he well, we, we haven't written the script, but we've written um, a story about it. Uh, uh, a recount of the evening is on the spinoff.co.nz. Uh, it's a very strange story with a really special ending, so I will um, I will leave you with that teaser to go and to go and check it out. And a big thank you to um, Sam Mannering for busting our con man, <laughs> and to he and um, Jamie for a really delicious dinner. Everyone around our table was thrilled about it, and it's a um, winter dinner series. If it wasn't for Sam, Sophie might not be sitting here today. She could be mm. on a super yacht bound for Spain. <laughs> to think that I deserve a bit more credit than that, Simon, but who so, knows? As, as mentioned, one thing we really want to do on the pod is eat and drink a lot. We're all um, two glasses deep on the sparkling, and we'll soon transition to some stouts, but we thought we'd uh, kick off the eating with um, some bacon and eggs. What I've done is cook... Uh, oh, I've, I've made some egg sandwiches two, two ways, uh, a traditional mustard, mayonnaise and parsley, always the... It's mustard traditional. I, I like to add a bit of um, horseradish flavour to um, sure. almost everything I cook with. Sounds a bit avant-garde. Shout out Nigella. Um, <laughs> she's like you, Sophie, and permanently carries a bottle of horseradish around with it. No Coleman's English, yeah, hot English mustard oh, right. in her bag. Yeah. Okay. Woman after my own heart. And I've made some bacon, and this was actually the subject of intense debate at uh, the office. We, I like my bacon very, very crispy. 
to the point where it's like glass. I'll often um, tell you who hates you, waitresses. Well, <laughs> well, I'll tell. I'll tell a quick story. It's not mine, but I'll do it in the first person because it's more effective. While we eat, we eat the bacon. We should eat. Um, I was at a cafe and I asked for my bacon to be crispy. It arrived and it wasn't crispy. And I re- suggested it might be cooked a little bit more. And uh, it came back still not crispy. And I said, "This is the waitress problem that I was just mentioning." Yes, yes. Would it be possible There's if a you could make my bacon a little bit more crispy? And uh, the owner of the cafe uh, uh, told me, "It just can't be any more crispy," <laughs> which. <laughs> Isn't true. Like you can make your bacon, but very, the thing is, crispy. so you're you're the crispy bacon orderer. I'm the waitress. Crispy bacon is it, there's a spectrum of crisp. So that very often happens where you you don't want to cook the hell out of someone's bacon and then them say, oh, that's too much. Yeah. So I think that there should be. So if we've got a scale out of ten, how crispy are we talking? And Simon would say nine and a half. Nine. Yeah. See, big fan of the crisp. Yeah. Not everyone that thinks they're having crispy bacon thinks they're getting that. Mm. I sympathise having worked in cafes in my time, but I got particularly annoyed with people who would ask for extra hot coffee. Mm. They, yeah, they need to just jump in the sea. Well, as a barista, I just heat the cup to make sure that you don't yes. get that because then they touch the cup and it's and really, they, yeah. Mm. Ouch. Mm. But on the other end of the spectrum, uh, the pet hatred, and it's something that I've been scarred with by my mother, uh, who used to microwave bacon. Delicious, and, crispy. You know the the paper towel over the top of the plate, and you end up. And I've done it today as an experiment, and I've served Sophie um, some mic- and myself some microwave bacon, and the which is arguably in breach of my dietary requirements. Yeah, it the, looks very it doesn't look delicious. If I Eight meat, this would turn me off eating This meat. would be the last piece. It almost it's looks very, like smoked chicken, doesn't yeah, it? Oh, my God. God. Maybe that's why I hate it. <laughs> it's got that sort of it's sickly pink. It's pink. pink. It's floppy. It looks like it's sweating. It kind of looks like an, somebody's ear. I think I've realised why your mother might have done this to you. I think it's because she, she was you? lazy. No. Don't be so rude about your mother. I think it's because she has always been calorie conscious, oh. and so she's put it between two... Paper towels in the microwave. She's turned it on, and the fat has then cooked into the paper towel. So it's the it's the low fat form of bacon. Maybe. Maybe we should get Simon's mother on the podcast to defend herself. Yeah. Jane should Day. We, should we taste the microwave bacon, Alice? I'll pass. Thanks, Simon. It tastes very smoky. Is this the same Freedom Farm bacon that we just had, the crisp version? It is. Well, I have to say that when you're crisping it up that much, Simon, you lose all the smoky flavour. Interesting. Good thing. A good thing? Oh, because you don't like mm. smoked food. Mm. We actually had three different types of bacon. We had rindless middle bacon, back bacon, and rindless eye bacon. I've got eye here. It's all very good. It's got a really, really delicious smoky flavour, doesn't it? So what you're saying is uh, the microwave so is the microwave bacon, does it actually taste not that bad? It's fine, Silence. but to me it's texturally... Um, yeah. Do you know what? I'd love to fun. say it tastes bad, but it doesn't. Mm. Well, I think that's credit to Freedom Farms. I was really fine, judging it, wasn't I? product. Mm, yeah. I was expecting it to be revolting, <laughs> but here we are. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> Alice is all over them. I think microwaves are maligned, though. 
they used to be, you know, really big, and now people were kind of like, oh, why do you even need a microwave mm. in your house? My husband treats it like it's going to give him cancer. Yeah. He'd rather put something in the oven for 45 minutes to heat up yes. than blitz it for one minute in a microwave. Yeah, it's weird. I'm not into it. So with the eggs, uh, I've made egg sandwiches two, two ways. Um, as mentioned, the classic mayonnaise and mustard, and what I think is really important is... Not flat leaf parsley. What is not flat? Curly. curly, curly parsley. Yes, I was noting the curly parsley. Very old school. I think you know that's the way my grandma. He's throwing it back. That's yeah. the way my grandma made it for me. But what my grandma also did uh, was she made me curried egg sandwiches, which I much prefer. But again, comes with some scarring because I was that kid at school. Smelly lunchbox. Who would box. break open his lunchbox mm, and yeah. everyone smells would, like farts. Yeah. Mm, not popular. You must have been hated. It's the equivalent, the adult, the child equivalent of the adult in the um, the tuna in the breakout room, isn't mm. it? Well, yeah. I got in trouble last week for um, microwaving a fish curry. Actually, I think it's a common sorry. theme emerging here. Sorry, Catherine. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> microwaving a fish curry. Oh, I don't know if that is that not kosher. Apparently, it, it definitely smelled wasn't. Very, very I, bad. I I thought as a curry, the um. Larger flavours of the spice would um, mask the fish, but oh, you thought about it. And yeah, then you no, went I ahead. told people that I was gonna, you know, this is what I'm, it's so going to be. That right. it was a it's going to be okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, about seventy-five percent of the new office smelled like a fish's foot. Wow. Mm. Okay, so I've tried your sandwich. With both of them. No, I've yeah, tried I've the, the curly parsley. The classic. Which I like. It's nicely seasoned. Yes. Leone actually had to, she tasted it earlier and had to come in with some salt. Mm. It was under-seasoned initially. Yeah. What did yes. you think, Ella? I enjoyed it. Um, yep, nicely seasoned. Thanks, Leone. And I enjoy the traditional white bread, which kind of sticks to the roof of your mouth. No, see, I was. that's my least favourite like part of it. It reminds me of my childhood. And yeah, mm. I like the curly parsley. Um, yeah, good. But I'm looking forward to trying the curried, more exotic version. There are two reasons for the white bread. I think that's who uh, egg sandwiches should be paired with. It's classic, it's simple, it lets the... Yes, uh, but if I'm going to go down that street, I want no crusts. I'll cut the crust mm, off okay. for you next time, Sophie. <laughs> so, more, so that the listeners know, Simon has not taken the time to remove the crust from our sandwich. The more practical reasons for the white bread is I'm getting a colonoscopy on Thursday and my dietary requirements <laughs> for the colonoscopy start uh, today and I'm not allowed to eat anything uh, brown, uh, brown, no brown bread, no grainy bread, so white bread was um, essential. Mm, I like it. I'm a fan. So pleased to be part of your colonoscopy journey, Simon. Yeah. We knew you'd bring that in somewhere. I was told not to, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Do you know what I think would pair well with this egg sandwich? A top-up of the Ninth Island Tasmanian sparkling Simon, we've wine. been empty for, for hours over here. Poor host. Okay, shall we move on mm. to the curry sandwich? Mm. Oh, Alice is in there. Yep. Talk to us. So it should have some warmth. There's some mm, chilli in I there. I like it. Chilli and curry powder. Well, often curry powder doesn't have much heat to it. Right. It's, um, technically, curry powder doesn't exist in India. Um, it's a That's a fun weird, fact. It is. It's a weird amalgamation of um, all Indian flavours, and it's probably turned down in the heat department because it's made for, you know... White people. Yeah. 
<laughs> I enjoy curry Dick's powder. Disclosure with it three tastes, white people. I think curry powder tastes very English to me in a good way. Like it, this reminds me of kedgeri, the classic mm. um, dish that was taken from colonial India. Well, you know, developed by the English in the Raj. And also coronation chicken. I was going to say, I get a real coronation vibe yes. from it too. My we sister made me coronation chickpeas for the um, royal wedding. Oh, that was nice, nice of her. Yes. I was just about to say we had some very nice coronation chicken uh, at the royal wedding party. Um, yeah, I'm liking this sandwich. It's got quite a lot of warmth to mm. it. I'm, I'm glad. It's a cold... I sort of forgot that we were recording a podcast and just started eating the sandwich. It's good, isn't it? It's a cold, it's a cold winter's afternoon, so I'm glad my um, chilli curried egg sandwiches have warmed you up. But another way to warm up is um, some stout. Oh, You've really nailed the segues. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pro. Mm. Alice is the beer queen. Yes, I like beer a lot. I feel like that makes up for my not eating meat. It kind of, you know, mans me up a bit liking beer. So, you did people turn of New your Zealand. nose up at Peroni a few minutes ago, didn't you? Yeah, it's because I'm a beer snob. <laughs> Peroni's fine. It just tastes like lemonade to me, you know? Like, yeah. But now we've got a pan head blacktop oat stout. Which actually means that caramelized golden naked oats are used for it. I don't know what golden naked oats are. Sexy. Um, I'm just reading this, obviously, but aromas of chocolate, coffee, and vanilla follow through to toasty, roasty notes and hints of exotic spices. That must be why it goes so well with the curried egg sandwich. But I know tasting notes are leading, and as soon as you hear about mm, yeah. chocolate and moccasins, and you know, you, you start to taste them. <laughs> but I, I get it. I see it. It's totally, yeah. It's interesting to me how. Um, much it lacks any carbonation. Yeah, and that's with a lot of um, ales and stouts and that sort of thing. It looks like Guinness to me. Is it less effervescent than Guinness? Um, hard to say. I mean, I get Guinness, less yeast. Yeah. It's got more flavour than Guinness, I would oh. say. We were talking about um, dark beers with the... The founder of the Gabs Beer Festival. The founder Festival, of the Gabs Beer Festival. Whose name that is That looked like, to ho- like a hoot. That was at the weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was Steve good times. Like Oktoberfest in Auckland. Oktoberfest in Auckland was hosted by Steve, and Steve told us about a stout made with the yeast of a brewer's belly button uh, fluff. Was, oh. that, was it a stout? <laughs> Stop. I thought it was a stout. Maybe. That's not the key part of the story. No, it's It's revolting. Carry on. There's also been a beer made with the yeast of a vagina. Mm. Oh, equally disgusting. Interesting. I went to Gab's on Saturday yeah. and I didn't have either of those, thankfully, but I did have a beer made with snails. Okay. And one made with parsnips from Invercargill. Okay, cool. So is it kind of like a wild beer fest in a way, but then there's also kind just of. sit down and drink beer and sing all afternoon if Every, you like. So uh. beer's... Simon. Breweries, Alice told me to do it. Yeah, I did. Sorry. Breweries make a special beer for Gabs, so a lot of them tend to go a bit out there. Yeah. The worst beer Show I tasted, they got. and I can't remember who it was, and I'm really sorry, but it was made with lavender, and it was so gross. It tasted like bubble bath or something. Yeah. Cheap perfume. Yeah. Too aromatic. But this beer is nice. 
and I'm going to write a story about um, dark beers for winter. If you think you don't like dark beers, think there are again. many styles. I mean, I I would never order one, so I look forward to your story oh, because you what I'd like to know what I would get from that that I wouldn't get from a great glass of wine, red wine in a winter hug. by the, the fire. Well, yeah, I don't know, man, but different strokes, different maybe strokes. But I'll try it if you tell me to, Alice. I yeah, I will tell you to, and you should. Great. I you have should. dabbled in home brewing, and the most successful beer I've made has been a black IPA, which sounds like a sort of contradiction because IPA means India Pale, Pale Ale. Yeah. But it's basically a dark beer that's a bit hoppy, and it's really nice. Okay. Hmm. So, something that we're going to do each month is talk to someone interesting who's involved in uh, New Zealand food and beverage. And we are really lucky this month to speak to Sid and Chan Sarawat. They are um, a wonderful couple. And why we singled them out is because in May, some rather huge food news dropped. The French cafe had been sold. After 20 years, Simon Wright and Craigan Malloy Wright had sold, and they'd sold to Sid and Chand, which seemed crazy because they already own two restaurants, two very good restaurants. The two couples, they've had a huge influence on uh, the Auckland dining scene. The French cafe has been at the top of the game for nearly two decades. Have you guys ate there? Eaten? Ate? I have. Alice? I've eaten. Eaten. There. Eaten there? Yes, not, I have too. Not frequently, but absolutely over had, the last I 10 years or so. My mum's 60th birthday there last year, and it was very, very good, and it's always very good. To me, Sid and Chand are really interesting because Simon and Craigan have sort of dragged New Z- uh, Auckland dining into the future, and Sid and Chand, for me, are the future. They won practically everything this year at the Metro Awards. Um, their first restaurant, nine years old, Sidart, is um, fine dining at its best. It's this pursuit of perfection. Uh, its tasting menu is intricate. But down the road in the city at Cassia, it's, you know, a more robust uh, downtown um, Indian sister. They really challenge you to uh, look at Indian food a different way. Think about it as more than um, takeaways, which I think is really, really important. Um, And now they own the French Cafe as well, which is pretty buzzy for a, a couple who have two children, two restaurants, and now a third. Um, I was so really... young as well. They are young. Chand is only 33, which is how old I am. And, and Simon. Sid is 37. I think I just was really surprised when I saw that mm. lately. What an enormous They've amount achieved to have achieved. So I was really lucky to spend some time with Sid over the past month, watching him cook at both restaurants. And then I got to dine at them both as well. Um, I've written about uh, that experience on the spin-off. And last month, Alice and I spoke to um, Sid and Chand about taking over the French cafe, about cooking with only New Zealand produce, and about migration as well. It was also my birthday that day, so I baked them a cake. And uh, this is a recording of our conversation. So welcome and thank you for joining us and congratulations. It's really huge news and it's really, really exciting. Yeah, thank you. I'll be very excited. Congratulations. Thank you. Was it a hard decision to make? 
Actually, I think the decision was harder to have a second restaurant, Cassia, than it was to go in uh, headfirst into looking at buying a third one this time. It was a conversation in the bathroom that <laughs> took place between Sid and me, and we said, do we want to do this? Yes, we do. What was the process, and how long did it take from knowing that um, Simon and Craig were looking to sell to, to saying, yes, we'll do it? Very, it was quite short, actually. It so was... I think we heard rumours and we like to... Um, Sid decided to call um, Simon and say, hey, look, mate, there are a few rumours going around. Um, if they're not true, we just want to make sure that we're killing them on our end as well and you, we wanted to make them aware. And they said, well, there's not that much truth to them, but if the right people came around, we'd look at it. And so we just looked at each other and said, are we the right people? <laughs> <laughs> and then I think it was a process of about... Meeting meeting them in March or February or March. Um, it was mid March. We mid March. We, we saw them at the French Cafe of this year. Of yeah, this year. This year. <laughs> wow. And then talking to our um, financial advisors, banks, getting the funding. I think that was the hardest part. A um, couple of weeks of negotiation, and yep, here we are. So that's you know March, and then the press release comes out in May. That's yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy timing. <laughs> but the French Cafe is a is a special place for you guys. You had, um, you know, one of your first dates there. Is that right? First, I think formal dining dates. Yeah, and was um, it, for me. It, was, it really created um, and it, it inspired me to do what I do today. Because till then I was cooking more Italian cuisine than anything else, and um, I hadn't really eaten that style of food in Auckland till then. So when I ate at French Cafe, I loved the style of service and the refined um, approach to to the food. And um, that's that's one of the reasons that I, I cook what I cook today. It was 2003, yeah. very young <coughs> Sid and me. So 15 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And have you been friends with um, Simon and Cragen for a while? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we always it's it's with our with our lifestyles. It's very hard to see socialize as much as we'd like to, but we'd always see them at the awards and yeah. other social gatherings and things. Mm, cool. Because their um, influence on Auckland's hospitality uh, industry will be permanent. Oh, it's for huge. sure, they're pioneers. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they've been running the restaurant for close to twenty years. But the French cafe itself is about 35 years old. So I think it's, um, when we were looking at the licensing aspect of it, it's one of the oldest licensed restaurants in Auckland. Mm. Yeah. The license goes back 35 years, which no one's continued, had a continual license on the same side for that long. The most beautiful thing about Simon and Craig and French cafe is how they've always kept evolving as well. You know, the restaurant just looks better and better all the time. It's just got a great space with the courtyard and the garden. Yeah the French kitchen, the cellar. So it's just pretty um, pretty amazing what they've achieved. And they have just didn't stop, you know? Mm, yeah. We feel like we've been quite similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, they've been an inspiration to us as a couple. Mm. Um, a long time back, I well, my profession is to be a teacher. I'm a um, trained secondary school teacher, and I was a secondary school teacher for a while. But when we started thinking about opening Cassia, said to Sid, um, if you look at hospitality, the most successful people are husband-wife couples who are completely immersed in the business. So how about I give up my teaching career? And we looked at Simon and I, I used them as an example, Simon and Craig, and um, look at how they run the French Cafe. 
how about I give up my career and join you full time? And that makes it easier to have number two as a restaurant. Was that a hard choice? Um, yeah, it was a very hard choice. Having Cassia? No, giving, giving up, up my career. career. Yeah, it was. Um, I still miss it quite a bit. I miss the kids quite a bit. And now when I think about um, how many, how teaching is having a real big shortage, mm. I sometimes go, oh. But then I know giving it five or six years or another 10 years maybe, I can go back. But at the moment, he pays me better than teaching <laughs> us. And he's a better kind of boss. Mm. Yeah. Because um, hospitality is a unique uh demand on your time, uh, on your mind, and especially for a, for a couple and, mm. and now a family, how has it been um, developing your restaurants and growing your family at the same time? I think we take our family with us, and that's one of the key things. Our kids are very heavily involved in the restaurants in the sense Zoya knows from age one She'd go to restaurants. She knows that her dad is a chef. They often come down and have staff meals at Siddharth and Cassia. They're part of the family. Everyone knows them. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's great how we balance that. We don't leave the family behind. Sometimes it does feel like I'm a single mom because he doesn't finish work until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and I'm the one parenting. But he makes up for it on the weekends. As a great dad, he takes them, plays netball with Zoya, He's looking at doing sport with our younger one. They're always in the park cycling. Even when we thought about buying the French cafe in that first meeting, both the kids went with us mm. to the restaurant and Zoya explored the entire restaurant and we asked her, so, do you want us to buy this restaurant? So they're part of the decision making as well. I mean, it, it sounds crazy to ask a seven-year-old if you're going to buy a <laughs> restaurant, great. but, but it's, it's a, involving it's, it's a them. decision that affects her life. Yeah. Exactly, yes. yeah. Yeah. And if yeah, if she would have said no, then we probably would have definitely thought again. Yeah, yeah. What's going to change um, when you take on the French Cafe? What's going to change at the French Cafe? What will change at Cassia, and what will change at Sida? So French will, I guess, it'll just be more um, of my style of cooking and repertoire. So uh, a bit like what we do at Sidat. So it'll be um, modern European dining. Um, and we'll keep the same formats so people can come and have three or four courses or people can come have the full tasting. Um, the service is, is very similar um, between the two restaurants, so we'd probably keep it very similar. Um, Cassia will stay the same, and then Siddharth will become progressive Indian. So still formal um, and still tasting menu only, but a little bit more Indian flair in it. So how will the food differ at Cassia and well, I guess cassia is you can have one dish, two dishes, and um, I guess um, we have quite a few robust curries mm-hmm. um, with a lot of um, French influence in terms of the technique, but it's very true Indian in terms of its flavor. And I think we'll sh- um, not everything at Siddharth is going to be Indian. Yeah, It's going to have a, a lot more Asian kind of influence, but we definitely want to capture the essence of India. Mm. And we want to. We want it to be very playful as well. Yeah. Has that been something you've wanted to do for a while? Sort of fine dining Indian, mm. as opposed to cassia style. Yeah, I mean um, that's what cassia was. We wanted to test the waters with cassia anyway. Mm-hmm. There's so much more you can do with any cuisine, and that's what we're gonna um, I think evolve. We, I think Sid looks at playing to his strengths. I think when we did Siddharth, cassia was already thought out. 
but it could not have been done in 2009 because the market wasn't ready for yeah. anything that was ethnic. Mm. And so he played to his strengths uh, with people and consumers who knew him at the Grove as a head chef. So he wanted to do what he was known for and build a customer base. With Cassia, we actually thought of formal dining for Cassia originally. I don't know if Sid remembers that. Yeah, we did. And we looked at a couple of sites in Ponsonby and... The feedback we were getting was that everything was heading towards the casual end of the market. So we thought, well, let's test waters with Cassia being a, an informal restaurant, a smart dining concept. We didn't want to compromise on service, but I think people weren't ready again for fine dining Indian in that way, yeah. where you could have a degustation that was influenced by Indian flavors. And now that we've tested Cassia and Auckland through that, I think we're ready for the next level yeah. and changing Siddharth. It's a big call for us to change Siddharth because it's a nine-year-old restaurant um, and changing the direction a little bit. But I think it's time and I think Auckland's ready because the feedback we get from Cassia customers sometimes is that they want that intimate dining space. Mm-hmm. Cassia can be loud. Cassia's fun. Yeah. It's where you go with your mates. But I don't know if you'd go there for your 10th wedding anniversary and yeah, have a quiet you accidentally smash wine glasses off. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. So oh, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think the feedback we've got is that Auckland's ready and they want to have the Indian-influenced flavours coming through, but in a more intimate setting. And I think Siddharth's ready for that change. Are you proud to have been part of that progression of leading Aucklanders to a place where they can see Indian food as being more than takeaways? Yeah, we're very proud. proud The team team is a big big part in there, you know. We couldn't ever do it without the people who yeah. work with us. Well, we had the vision, but to realise <clears> the vision, you need good staff who believe in your vision. And, and when I'm, we said we were going to do modern Indian, we actually didn't know what that meant. Yeah. It's not like we looked at some books or looked at some restaurants overseas and just literally copied them. So it was it was a kind of a, a work in progress for the first year. I think the inspiration came from our own home. It's the way we always ate yeah. that we could not find in Auckland. So on a Sunday, Sid would cook me a nice eye and then put a curry sauce rather than the usual sauce. Or he'd do um, quail on the tandoor um, or on the barbecue, but spiced with Indian flavours. And we were like, why can't we eat like this in Auckland? Why is everyone ignoring those yummy Indian flavours? Why do you have to go to a takeaway or an Indian restaurant that's, um, the, the ambience just does not feel yeah. right. Yeah. The service is not where we want it to be. And a lot of people just um, just think that, you know, Kiwis are not ready for the real f- cuisine. That's just not Indian. I, I think I find that even with Thai or any other, mm. um, uh, you know, um, Asian Balinese, cuisine. It's just they're diluted with so much cream and sugar and, um, you know, the, the meat has no flavor because they think that they want bland food, but actually Kiwis are ready for the, they want the proper thing, you know. And I think we're seeing that change in, in mm. a lot of ways. You oh, know, for sure. Places like San. Mm. Um, well, it was Mucha Chao, Blue mm. Reason. Mm. Yeah. 1947 as yeah. well. You Absolutely. Know, Indian, Indian has reached a place where it's, it's so much more than um, butter chicken and naan. Yeah, know? exactly. And we were very shy, I think, of even showcasing our own beautiful produce. Which I think that's uh, hats off to Sid because we've done that with you know New Zealand beef, New Zealand lamb, New Zealand kaimana. Why didn't we ever use them with Indian cuisine? Mm. Why was it always the chicken and why didn't anyone think of using venison? Why didn't anyone think of using 
other meats, duck. You'd never find duck on an Indian restaurant menu. Like, but it goes so beautifully in a curry. Mm. I think that's been a huge part of the development of, um, in quotation marks, fine dining in Auckland. Is mm. it's is it's lost its um, stiff up, you know, stiff back. Mm. It's become a lot more. Um, exciting and fun while still retaining a really high level product um mm. i was really uh it was really special to be at a dine at sadat the other day and you know there's music playing there's staff are vibing with you and it's it's a mm. lot of fun yeah mm. is that an experience that you're trying to give your diners we want everyone to feel like they're coming to our, our home for dinner or lunch we wanted it to be relaxed. Of course, it comes at a price because of the the amount of work that goes into creating that experience. But yeah, I, I don't I don't really like um, sterile kind of environment because it's not sustainable. And you want the staff to smile, and you want them to have a joke, and they want you want them to be personable and like you, and show their own personality and bring that to service. But still have that very fine detail, detail. that mm-hmm. what Attention makes it for detail. formal dining, you know. How do you inspire your staff to both push themselves and go out and grow on their own but keep keep coming back? It's, it comes with the ethos and the culture that we try to create. We don't try to have power relationships in the restaurants. Um, Sid will sit down after um, service on Friday with everyone at Cassia and he'll do the same at Siddharth and they're encouraged to hang out with each other. And it's so it's so encouraging for us to see staff actually go out on their days off together. I'm like, aren't you sick of each other? But they aren't. They actually think of themselves as a family. So adding French Cafe has given them all another incentive that tomorrow you get bored at Cassia or you've outgrown the role. You can move within our family. We're not going to say no. And um, it was quite interesting when we actually announced the French Cafe news to the staff just to see their expressions because especially some of them who've been with us for a long, long time and we had to keep it very tight tight till that day, you know. And they only knew just, a day before the... It was very course. fascinating for me to see their expressions like they were just, some of them were just shocked, you know. And I think it's just, if they were not, if we didn't have all these strong people everywhere, we would never do French Cafe. Okay, no. Mm. Because we would not have that confidence, you know. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why we've done this is so that they can grow even more seeing you um, do the collaboration menu on, on a Friday, yeah, mm. it just shows how invested you are in um, moving food forward because suddenly there was um, you know, a, a French chef from your kitchen, a Korean chef, all pushing those influences onto you totally, and allowing uh, you to learn as well. Can you tell me about the inspiration of the collaboration menu that you serve on Fridays? So we, um, I, I guess about five years ago, we... Um, we we uh, we uh, I saw this thing that Noma does, um, and they called it. The, uh, I don't know if they still do it um, with the, with the new location or not, but it was called Saturday Night Projects, where uh, about four or five chefs will do a dish each, and then they will just basically talk about it. What what was the thought process behind that dish and things like that? And um, I really wanted our chefs to kind of reflect their style, and we started that. But um, they used to do. Um, two portions of the same dish but when you do two portions of one dish you can really put in a lot of technique and a lot of it might not be very practical as a restaurant service goes and that's the reason I changed that concept to the collaboration lunch where you have to do 40 plates at different times and on a different course 
and then you really understand what it takes to uh, make a menu in a restaurant and you know balance it in terms of te- temperature, texture, and flavor. And balance the whole menu as a exactly as a story. Yeah, and you know, it's, you got to cost it out. You got to make sure everything is seasonal, and all these are things that when you become a head chef are pretty handy if you've already kind of been doing them before. Mm. But it's again, again, it's about for us. It's about the power dynamics as well. So Sid doesn't hold all the power in the restaurant because then people are not motivated to work if they're coming in doing the exact same thing every single day and not doing anything different and they're not taking ownership. That's when they lose interest. So I think it's great for, and Sid learns, I'm sure, from the chefs as well. Totally. Yeah. If you say, I know everything as a head chef or as a leader, that's where, for me, a business doesn't work because we all need to learn. And we learn from our staff, we learn from our customers, and we learn from each other. And so it's great to share that power and for giving them that power that, okay, you can decide the menu, I'll just be there to guide you. But what's cool about this collaboration is um, that as a diner, you can come once a week and a very good value for money, but you never eat the same dish again. Hmm. Is finding staff been a big problem for you? I know you've talked about the immigration law changes being yeah. an issue. I think, and looking at, you know, we've been eating out recently quite a bit as well. I think it's an, it's an issue that not just we don't just face, but everyone in the industry is facing at the moment. Um, and that's the feedback from other employers as well. Um, to be honest, I agree to a certain extent um, that we need to get Kiwis, more Kiwis employed in hospitality. We need to change the way we think about hospitality being a low paid, hard work, let's not get into it kind of industry. You look at France, they don't have a shortage because <laughs> they think of it as a career. Yeah. Not a stopgap thing, what you do while you're in uni to make some money. Um, and we don't have career Kiwis in hospitality, as many as we would like. There are a few, but they're hard to find. Not everyone needs to be a doctor or engineer. If you're not passionate about it, don't do it. If you're passionate about food, think about hospitality. Think about service. For me, it is like <laughs> any trade, like we're having a shortage in the building industry, mm. is the same thing. And... We wouldn't like to rely completely on overseas, um, holiday, working holiday people or staff coming because they're just short-term and temporary. There'd be nothing like having 90% Kiwis. Yeah. And that's the ideal world. But unfortunately, we're not in an ideal world at the moment. So what would be the right balance for the immigration laws at the moment? It's really hard and I get it why the government struggles. I would say they need to do an industry-by-industry Review For me, my biggest problem is the blanket laws that go across the entire industry. Uh, oh, you need to earn this much and it should be across every industry. It doesn't work like that. Some of them are specialist skills like a pastry chef, for example, a tindu chef, for example. We need those people to be recognized for their skill level. It's like saying, oh, we only need brain surgeons. We yeah. don't need a GP. It's not the same thing. No. You're not going to go for a cough to a brain surgeon, are you? <laughs> I think another thing is that we have to realize that hospitality is a very transient industry by itself because let's say we have a Kiwi um, sommelier, right? He needs to go and travel mm. to understand wine from other countries. He can't just be sitting here because yeah. he's not going to get the experience. Same thing with the chef. We have a Kiwi chef. He's gone now to Franzen, Franzen yeah. Sweden. 
And what that is doing is allowing him the world experience and working in another kitchen. And that's going to benefit our own country when he comes back. But that does mean we need more Kiwis because it is an industry that people travel in. So they can take those skills anywhere in the world. You mentioned that after your comments at the Metro Awards about the immigration laws, there was a bit of a backlash. Mm. Can you tell us about that? Um, I think not everyone agrees with someone standing up and saying that there's something wrong and there's always going to be people who don't agree with your opinion. And so there were a few people who probably don't understand our brand on what we do and that we do employ a lot of Kiwis and we're not just one of those Indian restaurants with an Indian chef who is looking at hiring their uncles and aunties and brothers and sisters from India. If you look at our restaurants, they're ethnically diverse. In our management, they're only residents. And I'm very proud to say that because it brings stability to our business to not have someone just coming in and out of the country who doesn't know if they can stay here. So we have only residents. And it was just from those people who are not happy and they didn't like the... It, it is, I think, on an overall basis, the country has got that immigrants, there's too many people, there's overcrowding in Auckland, can't buy a house. And then you hear this Indian woman standing up and saying, we need more people in our industry. But I was only talking about our industry. I wasn't talking about immigration in general. So there was a bit of a backlash, people saying, hey, um, you know, Auckland housing is such a problem, it's caused by people like you who are immigrants. Which at that point, you get reminded, because we don't see colour, Mm. I never saw colour. I never thought of myself as an Indian. I used to teach at Rangitota College, which is um, Auckland's biggest, well, New Zealand's biggest school. And I was an Indian teacher teaching teaching English yeah. to students who didn't look like me. But then to be reminded that, that's a bit, it puts you in, put things in puts things in perspective and it's not always in a nice way. But, you know, everyone has a right to their opinion and I don't know their experiences. And you're very big on celebrating New Zealand ingredients on your mm. menus as well, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, we're very, very conscious now, yeah. and we actually really enjoy it. You know, it uh, challenges us. Uh, it challenges us a little bit more, mm. um, and um, things are more simply um, presented because sometimes you don't have to have ten things if you're doing a you know a power dish. It's, we think about its kind of environment and what's around it and work with that instead of thinking of, you know, getting um, caviar from France and putting that on or um, going, you know, getting truffles from overseas when you can get it from Bay of Plenty now. So things like that. It's got, and it's good for the chefs as well to really, um, to really respect what is around us. Because Siddharth's exclusively New Zealand ingredients, yeah. isn't it? That's yeah. right, yeah. Which is quite amazing when you think about, you know, every last little ingredient yeah it was yeah it took us it took us a while to source a few things but we really enjoy it now what was the hardest to source um i mean salt even like finding the right salt for cooking Mm, i mean salt sounds so such simple ingredient but we used to use australian salt yeah and then just i was like oh i need to you know and olive oil i mean there's is yeah We've got a great producer, Lot 8. Lot yeah. eight. Mm, and yeah. it's supporting, like, you have to see that it supports people who are in your own country as well. And yeah. for us, that's quite important. It's sustainable, and you're supporting growers and producers who are Kiwi. And they're really good. As they're well. really good. Mm. Um, yes, even, like, fresh produce has come such a far, uh, like long way okay. since, yeah. you know, a few years ago. People are going, growing things specially for us, and, you know. We're growing stuff ourselves at yeah. home for our restaurants. 
Yeah, um, your chilies look <laughs> yeah, amazing. <chilies. laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we supply all the chilies to um, Cassio, so they're all homegrown. And then I know what's going in there because I'm growing them. Yeah. Lots of the herbs that Sid consoles from other suppliers, we've started growing at home. At the moment, it's winter garden, so there's not much growing at the moment. Mm. But it's it's it gives me a new sense of appreciation on how much work is involved to grow. Yeah. New respect for farmers and producers for because sure. it is intense and you're dependent so much on the weather and suddenly you put something in and the pests destroy it. And you're like, <laughs> just start <laughs> again. But I think it is uh, very important for the whole story that we showcase to the world that everything is, should be kiwi in our restaurant because we have in a many a night we have 70% of our dining room is tourists that's right and so you're going to a kiwi restaurant and then you're eating french produce that just not, does not make yeah. sense you may be at the moment being served by a french waiter <laughs> in a but kiwi the, restaurant yeah they won't you know they, if, when they're coming from overseas they won't try new zealand they wine they won't try New Zealand beef and lamb, which is the best, one, some of the best in the mm. world, you know. Mm. What's the point of um, getting veal from Australia and giving, you know, they can go to Australia and have that. And it's, it's very important that to um, really celebrate our own produce and, um, and every, you know, every little detail that really leaves a memory, strong memory when they leave New Zealand. Will you try and have a similar um, dedication to New Zealand produce at the French Cafe? Absolutely, yeah. What is the what does the transition look like? We're planning a lot of um, the concepts and you know changes now. So when we when we take over the reins there, um, it's it's slightly more organised. But there will be uh, it'll be hectic in September. Because obviously, learning new systems at the French Cafe and we're getting keeping used to all it. the staff, which most of the staff, which means um, that side of things is a lesser headache. And a couple of um, the chefs who've been working with me will be going to the French Cafe, mm-hmm. so they know what, what 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 you know the changes are going to be slightly easier. But it's going to be um, it's going to be really interesting and challenging. Uh, I'm very nervous and excited at the same time, but that's the reason why we've done this. Not just not to get away with having everything on a platter, you know. Mm. So when Simon and Craig and leave on the Saturday night, mm. you guys will start cooking on the the Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, I think everything takes place on the Monday because they need to close off their service, even though their service will finish on Saturday. There's a whole lot of things for them to. After running a restaurant for twenty years, there are a lot of. Um, things that they need to do as well in terms of winding their operations down and for a new company for us to take over the business. There are a lot of admin things that I need to do. So I think um, it's great with the way we work that he has his duties and I don't jump into what he needs to do and I know exactly what I need to do before before um, that time. Also, they have this beautiful garden outside, which I think is very um, very exciting for, for the chefs there. And, and for me. Yeah, <laughs> a garden that they cook with. Yes, they yeah. have a French cool. garden. And they have the beehives and everything. So um, we would definitely incorporate a lot of that in our dishes. And we want, again, people coming to French Cafe have that real strong connection with what is around us. Mm. Yeah. Are you planning to make any changes to the decor or the kitchen? Not at this stage, no. no. I think that's... It, just always, it looks so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It is all kept so well. And that's one thing I'm really grateful that I don't have to do this time because with Siddharth and Cassia, they were both restaurants that had run themselves into the ground. Um, They were businesses that 
owners had not been able to run and had walked, had been kicked out or walked off of the failing businesses that we had to step into and do everything and the fit out. Those working with builders, I'm glad we don't have to do that side of things this time because that would have been a mammoth task. Um, and that's the beauty of having a restaurant that's running 20 years that you don't have, you can walk in, it's turnkey. You can walk in and you have the staff, you have the support there and you have the space looking beautiful. It's just the other things that we need to do. And it comes with a sense of responsibility as well. Big, big responsibility. Big responsibility. It's, uh, it's a legacy we've inherited, you know, which we have to keep it exactly the same. I want the service to be the same, quality, the food to be the same, you know. It's a three-hide restaurant, so... And to be honest, that probably paid a part in our decision to buy it <coughs> as well because, as I just said, you've been able to turn two damaged restaurants up and make them successful businesses. Surely this should be an easier <laughs> task. Yeah, yeah because go- we just um, renovated, um, re- yeah, renovated um, Siddharth about 18 months ago. So that's still quite fresh as well. But again, we, 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 we don't really like to sit still and that's, I guess, what this whole French cafe scenario came in. Would you keep, are you going to like keep any old dishes as a sort of nod to? Um, we're still sort of finalising yeah. the menu and things, um, but there's definitely a couple of things we would like to pay homage to. Yeah. And you're going to reinvent some. That's all I can say. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's really, really exciting, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. I can't wait to um, see that the effect that it has on Sudat and, and try um, what you do with the French Cafe, but it must be really exciting and I'm very excited for, yeah, for Sudat as well because it's not, you know, it'll be nine years in September, and with the slight um, change in the concept, I think it will be really good for all the regular diners of Sudat and even for the team. Yeah. Just you know, for some of the chefs who don't who don't know much about Indian food, they're going to learn so many new things now, and a, a lot of that credit goes to what we've done at Cassia. So we've really that um, you know um, perfected some of those techniques and flavors. So now to try and make them a bit more refined in, in a tasting menu format is going to be quite cool. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited. Mm. So final question: How how is my cake? Excellent. Oh, it's delicious. Excellent. Yeah, it's very good. I could have the Thank whole you. lot. Yeah. <laughs> Happy, <laughs> I birthday. Happy birthday, Simon. Thank you. Happy um, birthday, Simon. It's very pleasing to have um, you endorse my baking skills. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a pastry chef's job anytime you want. Yeah. <laughs> One more kiwi. One more kiwi. <laughs> One more kiwi. <laughs> so the cake that I cooked for Sid and Chand is a incredible Annabelle Langbein recipe and we'll put that up on the website we've been given permission Annabelle is actually a friend of Sophie's Um, I had the audacity to accuse Annabelle when she came round to our house for a party uh, that her chocolate ganache recipe was flawed I told her that um, the the portioning must be uh, wrong because it didn't set uh, Annabelle seemed to know me like the back of her hand and said, Simon, you're using the cheap chocolate, aren't you? And she wasn't wrong. <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, aren't we all? Who uses cheap chocolate? Simon Day in our flatting days. Oh, okay. Uh, and, you know, it would continue today had it, had it worked with cheap chocolate. But if you follow Annabelle's um, brilliant recipe for the ultimate chocolate cake on the website, uh, make sure you don't buy cheap chocolate because your ganache will never set.
And good uh, chocolate is expensive, I understand. Yes, but you can just use good dark Whitaker's yeah, dark yeah. chocolate. I mean, he, which is the, still expensive. The the level of um, chocolate that Simon's talking about is that stuff that's barely chocolate, yeah. like well, the chocolate honestly. buttons, you know, in the baking section. What was he expecting? Exactly, Alice. Later that night, um, when I met Annabelle, um, I proceeded to have a good boogie with her on the dance floor and executed my favourite dance move, which is to crawl between that person's legs. Annabelle Goodness. was shocked. I can imagine. She would have loved it. We're now moving into the dessert course of the podcast. Alice has used um, Freedom Farm's beautiful uh, free-range eggs to make a pavlova. Super Kiwi uh, dining today, bacon and eggs in a pav. It's got a, um S made out of pomegranates on the top. S is for Sophie, Simon, and the spin-off. What about Alice? And Salus. Salad? <laughs> Sophie, S Simon, salad. and Salad. Salad. Because ah. what? Because I'm a veg- this is another vegetarian gag. You don't want friends of salad. I know. I found that. You do with Pav, though. Yeah. It's not... It and looks, my lord, um, have you done a good one? Yeah, I'm not the I don't know. I think we should post Pav. on the internet the photos. Has it been photographed? I don't think the photo needs to go anywhere. It looks... I was going for a, like an art deco look. It's got... um, It's got... Pomegranate arrows all over yeah, it. Yeah, and uh, persimmon around the side. Persimmon? What a touch! But... As my colleague Hayden Donnell said, it looks like something out of a 1980s Woman's Weekly. Yes. Which is what I was going for, to be honest. Which I rate. Oh, God, now Simon's going to drop it. Don't drop the persimmon pomegranate. And persimmons, of course, are very seasonal at the moment. Where did you get the persimmons? Faro Fresh. And what else do you do with persimmons in your home? Um, I don't do much with them, but I did have a nice persimmon... Um, entree at Coco's Cantina the other day. Okay. Christmas is just kind of nice to eat. They're not too, they're, I don't know. They look nice. They're the nice, the sort of right balance between tart and sweet, yes, aren't they? Yes, that's what I was going for. Uh, yeah, I... They remind me of a mix between an apple a, and a tomato. Yeah. my. Po- I'm just looking at my pavlova. It's got a big, um, Hole. like a tunnel in the middle. <laughs> what have you <laughs> done to it? Yeah, I can't say I'm an expert at making pavlova, but... Whose recipe did you use? Oh, this is actually the recipe of... Are you sure you want to reveal (laughs) whose recipe this is? Yeah, it's going to taste delicious. Um, Jenny Grant, who's a friend of mine who is a food writer at Cuisine. Oh, awesome. This is her mother Pat's recipe. I was making it late at night and I may have used the wrong attachment on my... Cake mix. Cake mixer for a while. What attachment did you use? I just was using... perhaps be a lesson. The beta one. Whereas you should, of course, use the whisk. The whisk one. Yeah. Did your I forgot that I had another attachment. Did your egg whites form stiff peaks? Yeah, but it took so well. They didn't when I was using the bloody beta attachment. But mm. it's when I'd used the whisk. I've actually recently had an experience where I beat the bejesus out of some egg whites, and they just refused. Bless yeah, me. it happens. What is that? Uh, well, when I was furiously googling last night, there were various reasons. But mine, my reason... I can reason, assure you, Alice, that my eggs were fresh. That's that could Interesting you say that, Sophie, because actually fresh eggs are not good for pavlova. You want slightly not fresh eggs. Slightly rank eggs. Not rank, <laughs> but for example, my um, Freedom Farms eggs I got from Countdown and I chose the furthest away, best before date, usually, of course, with eggs or anything. I'd 
buy the closest. No, I would buy the furthest away. We get what you mean. But you know what I mean. Yeah, because you don't want the super fresh eggs. How does it taste? Mm, it's very it's good. It's actually delicious. Oh Sorry. But actually sounds like a backhand compliment, doesn't it? Mm. It's actually, delicious as I expected it yeah. to be, I should say. If I go with the butt, though, it's mm. more meringue than pavlova at this point. Well, what's the difference? It's like, oh, so you're talking about the soft centre. It's got a... I it's got a serious shelf. See, I, like, the I like the, the shelf. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I would say? Yeah. I could go more cream. Mm, I know. Are we on some sort of regime no. here? I, I think the moral, of the, the, top. the moral of the story is Alice doesn't really know how to make pavlovas, but she's now, you know, going to keep doing it for every podcast. Do you, you know can't I thought, make a pav for every podcast. I'm going to. I thought the... Plural of pavlova was pavlova. Pavlovi? No, you just said pavlovas. Well, I feel like you would know. You're a journalist, a proper one. Pavlova, of course, is named after Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova. Okay, so I maybe there just isn't a plural. I think your plural, you just add nest. Hmm. Okay. Um, I've now got six, no, four egg yolks. And who has any suggestions about what Mine I might is. do with them? Yeah, mayonnaise. Hollandaise. You could make a lovely um, no, custard. I've got a, can I tell you what my favourite thing to do with egg yolks is? Yes. So, Renee Red Zippy's wife, Nadine mm. Red Zippy, do you follow her Instagram? No, but she did Who a good cookbook. People? So, Renee Red Zippy is the head chef of Noma, and um, his wife, Nadine, is a home cook. So, yeah. her Instagram is full of things that she cooks at home for the family and for the kids. What she does that I love is she makes a lot of pasta, which is my favourite food, but um, she made a spaghetti carbonara recently. And actually, among other things, but what she does is get egg yolks Mm. and you put them in like an egg cup with soy sauce and you leave them to cure. So between 45 and 60 minutes, otherwise they can get a bit tough on the outside and a bit too salty. But for example, I made carbonara and then you put... A soy cured egg yolk on the top of each person's dish. Is it a boiled egg? No, it's just cured the yolk egg. cured oh. in the salty soy sauce. Is that all it takes? Because I've had cured egg yolks before, but I figured it must be like days. you can cure them in lots of things, right? Yeah. But this is yeah, soy sauce has got enough salt in it. Absolutely that delicious. But she does delicious. It, she does it with like a donburi bowl, all sorts yeah. of things with the soy cured yolk. But okay. that's what you're doing with your I, yolks. I am, and I will report back in the next podcast. Please do. Well, we've had. Three different types of food, uh, two different types of alcohol. And we're between meals. It's the afternoon, middle yeah. of the afternoon. Just a snack. Well, I think it's a, um, a perfect way to start what I hope will be a, a fruitful um, podcast series. So we've got glass cups now to hold the beer. Hmm. Cheers uh, to us. Cheers to you. Cheers. Two. Thanks, guys. To us. We thought um, a really great way to finish uh, our first episode would be a tribute to Anthony Bourdain. Um, an incredible human, a, an amazing chef, a, a great writer. He really exposed what um, the world looked like behind the food uh, that we were eating. He, he made food have life behind what it tasted like, behind the fuel that it provided. Um, something that we want to do with the pod. And it was really, really, really sad to learn um, 
that he had passed away, that he'd taken his own life. Uh, so we've been given an opportunity to play uh, a small extract from a wonderful interview that he did with Helen Holliman, uh, the founding editor-in-chief of um, Munchies, and she interviewed him for her uh, Vice Munchies podcast. Shout out to Uncle Tony and... See you all next month. Bye. Signing off. See you later. Kakite. Look, as dim a view as I have of the future right now, and it's pretty goddamn grim. And this is not exclusively an American problem. I mean, we're seeing a rise of authoritarianism and uh, uh, strongman uh, leaders everywhere. Don't be a hashtag activist. Change is going to take some fucking time. Dig in for the long haul. Spend some time with the enemy. You know, walk around in some other people's shoes. Try to get your priorities reasonable. A little love. Some good pasta. Nice spicy noodles. Survival. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.